Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. Today, we are bringing you the last episode in our three-part miniseries on race and racism with Tabitha Moore and Ken Harney. Over the last three weeks, Tabitha and Ken have explored critical themes in race and racism as they relate to the child welfare workforce and children and youth of color in the child welfare system. Although each episode in this miniseries does have a distinct focus, our hope is that you listen to all three in the order of their release, as some of the concepts Tabitha and Ken discuss build on ideas from the previous episode. So if you are just joining us, please go back and listen to the first two episodes in this three-part series. Today, Tabitha and Ken will uplift and discuss critical themes in race and racism as they apply to Vermont's foster and adoptive families. And make sure you stay till the end because we have an extra segment where Tabitha and I go a little deeper into how to talk to families about race. Here we go. Thanks, Cassie. And hello, everyone. Tabitha Moore here to welcome you to this episode of Welcome to the Field. I'll be with you for this leg of our series as we dive head and heart first into talking about race and racism and child welfare. I'm fortunate to be joined by racial justice legend, expert, and marriage and family therapy icon, Dr. Kenneth Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a clinical and organizational consultant at the Eichenberg Institute for Relationships in New York, New York, where he also serves as director. He provides racially focused, trauma-informed training, executive coaching, and consultation to a diverse network of individuals and organizations throughout the United States and abroad. He's a former professor of family therapy at both Drexel University in Philadelphia and Syracuse University in New York, and has also served as the director of Children, Families, and Trauma at the Ackerman Institute for the Family in New York. York. Ken is joining me for three episodes as we explore themes of race around these critical issues, and this is our third episode. Ken, welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome back, I should say. Great to be here. So Vermont has a disproportionate number of children of color in the child welfare system. And with 94.7% of the state being white, we also have a large number of white-led interracial foster families and families in general. We also have a number of families of color who come into contact with our child welfare system. So in today's episode, we want to uplift and discuss race and racism with foster and adopted families. So my first question for you, Ken, is what are the considerations and caveats that you can think of uh, for families of color as they engage the child welfare system? Well, I mean, I think that um, to really be aware that, which they are, that race matters and that um, to trust their guts, because I think oftentimes that families of color tend to second guess themselves and internalize issues that, that probably should not be internalized. So I think just to to really understand that that in all of our systems in society that that race is a significant issue, and if they're sensing issues that have to do with race, to trust their gut. And to find someone that they can actually talk to and with and and probably someone who could be an advocate for them. I think that would be really important. And how in a state like Vermont, where the workforce is overwhelmingly white, how can families, how can they do that? Because, A, I think it's possible that there could be someone who doesn't share, someone white, so who doesn't share their racial background, who could potentially, could potentially be that person they could talk to. Mm-hmm. And so this is where I'm I'm thinking about trusting one to gut because I think there's an intuitive sense that people of color have from living in a racially conscious world that denies race 
that there's an intuitive sense that people call a habit about race. And so I think the chances are there's a greater probability in Vermont that it would very likely be someone white and not a person of color. And so I think to be able to um, to put one's antenna out and try to sort out who is the white person in my orbit, that it may be remotely safe to talk to about these issues. And again, it's not a sum zero game. So it may be that it's about who is more safe than someone else. But I think that even taking that risk and having that conversation with another white person who where you're not 100% sure it's safe to do that is far superior to having experiences that you can't express that you have to stuff. Because I think that when people of color and family of color brush up against racial issues and there's no outlet, and those feelings get stuffed, that creates a kind of internal toxin that uh, that becomes self-defeating uh, over a period of time. And so I just think it's important that whatever those experiences are, to find someone where you can actually have a conversation with it. And it may depend that that maybe you maybe you are not in a situation where you can be 100% honest with that person or 100% open. But even if you can be 50%, uh, where you can at least talk about uh, what was uncomfortable for you or uh, how you saw it or you felt this particular way, I think it's important to infuse that information back into the system because I think once it's out there, um, it has the potential to to change dynamic, even if the recipient of that feedback denies it. Mm. I, I think the worst possible thing, uh, which is a, the concern and worry I always have, is that families of color will feel and fear that their messages will not be received and alternatively will stuff them. And I think the process of stuffing it is problematic. So um, I know that question was was about parents of color, kids of color. Do you, or do you see anything different for uh, white parents who have kids of color um, that are engaged with the foster or I'm sorry, with the child welfare system? Yeah, because I hear some differences that, that I think that uh, there's a tendency for white parents because they live their lives as white people to under endow the significance of race. I think it's possible for families of color to over-endow the significance of race uh, and some families of color to over-endow but not engage. And because white families tend to under-endow the significance of rage, there's a lack of engagement. So if a white parent may be less likely to see a racial situation as racial and because they don't see it as racial, then doesn't pursue it as such. But I think it's important for white families white parents of children of color to sort of sharpen their racial lens, look at the world through to recognize that that while they may love the child, that they and the child have two fundamentally different experiences in life and they're perceived differently. And so the white parent has to imagine the world that he, she, or they're looking at through the eyes of that child of color. Mm. Uh, and that will heighten their sensitivity to race but then I think that white parents, even the even in the child welfare system, feel much more emboldened and much more empowered to speak than families of color. And so I think that the critical issue with white parents is to see, and the critical parent issue with families of color is to speak, because I think tend to see it, but speaking about it is difficult. 
I think it's a little bit harder for white families to see. And so as their kids are coming to them, you know, and having these experiences, you know, for, for families of color, we often will automatically bring it through that race filter and through that racism yes. filter, whereas white families aren't, that that's not a natural filter for them. So they need to develop that filter so that when their kid is experiencing an issue or whenever they're interacting with the system, they're thinking about race. Absolutely. And I think because what happens is if the, ch- if the child of color comes to a white parent and said, you know, Samantha, who sits behind me in school, continues to touch my hair. And I think it's because, you know, I'm black. And the white parent says, well, I don't think it has anything to do with race because I can remember being in school and kids were touching my hair. Well, you have the same experience, but because the white parent's hair was touched doesn't mean that it's not racial for that child of color. Right. And so you're right. So, so it's, it's to be able to honor that and to consider that it through a racial lens and then to take action accordingly rather than dismissing it. So for white parents, it's learning to uh, parent in a racialized world. Exactly. And you're having to see the world not as you see it, not as you imagine it, but as your as your child of color experiences it and describes it. Thank you. That's really powerful. And so, you know, we've talked about families of origin. Let's talk a little bit about foster families. You know, we have a lot of really loving people here in the state who want to take in any child that they can. And oftentimes one of the things that we see is interracial um, fostering here. So can you speak to the foster families for just a bit about how they can prepare for and support kids of color in their care, especially if they've never had experience with kids of color or kids of of that particular race? Yes. I, I mean, I think a... It's important to obviously love them the way you would any child, which most foster parents do. Um, but I, I think the critical challenge for white parents ado- uh, um, fostering children of color is creating a space for those children to be immersed in their own sort of racial culture uh, and and to have a willingness to partake of that as well. I was working with a foster father in Tennessee uh, who had a black, he and his wife had a black child. And it was interesting to me because they had a black child because uh, he was over 60 years old. And he reported that in, in Tennessee as part of statute, I don't know whether this is true or not, it's what he reported to me, was that beyond a certain age that you were considered high, high risk um, adoption and high risk fostering because of his age. And the only child that he could adopt was a black child, which that this requires another whole segment on institutional <laughs> racism within the system. But but that's not even why I bring this point up. Right. And that he had done a lot of reading, had listened to a lot of tapes of mine and so forth. And he was proud to tell me how that he and his wife made sure that his son uh, went to a black church and that he had these uniquely black experiences that was important to him. And he had learned that from all of his reading. And so that was great. But the problem was that they dropped the child off to go to the black church. They themselves didn't do it. And when a child was having these uniquely black experiences, they were not a part of it. So that it was still a segregated experience. And I think it sent a rather complicated message to the, the child. And so I think for white fostering families, um, I think there has to be a willingness to change how you live your life, that the privilege that white people have 
to live fairly segregated white lives actually is, has to be sacrificed and compromised when you adopt or foster uh, children of color. And so I don't think just dropping them off for those experiences is enough. I think you have to become a part of those experiences. I think that that's wonderful. And I think about, you know, how many Black churches we have in Vermont. <laughs> and we're, we're kind of slim on those. There are a couple. But, <laughs> so I think about kids here in Vermont and, you know, and um, white foster families wanting to do exactly what you're saying. But at the same time, if the child of color is raised in this kind of um, hyper white environment, what does that mean? What does that look like? In environments like Vermont, where the child's cultural exposure, their cultural identity either hasn't developed yet, especially if they're, you know, begin fostering as a young child, or there just aren't, there aren't a lot of opportunities. Well, you see, I, I, I think that that's a burden that one has, that a white family has to take on and fostering a child of color. Because, you know, when we talked previously about racial trauma you know, I, I remember highlighting one particular wound, which I described as devaluation, but another has to do with a phenomenon I refer to as sort of psychological homelessness. And psychological homelessness is this sort of existential search for an elusive something else. And so I think when you have, um, and I've had folks like this in workshops, when you have a child of color who's raised by a white family in a predominantly white area, and has not had adequate exposure to his race of the culture underpinning his race of origin. That what it what it essentially does it, it it puts that child in a position where he or she has to deal for the rest of their lives with a kind of psychological homelessness, where they vacillate between two experiences, never feeling comfortably embraced by either. So that when they're around white people, that um, they feel like a person of color in a sea of white faces. And when they're around people of color, they feel like a white person and they see a faces, uh, a sea of people of color. And so there's no place where that person feels like they solidly belong. And so I do think it's incumbent upon parents to make sure that early on that the child has experiences where he, that they're in a position to relate and adopt and incorporate some aspects of their race of origin, because it this doesn't matter how white of life a white family provides a child of color. The world is going to see that child of color as a person of color. Mm -hmm. And the cruelty is that, and then many people of color will see that person as a white person and treat him or her accordingly. And so even if it means traveling outside of one's area to make sure that happens or doing it vicariously through making sure that you're watching videos and movies and reading books and so forth, I, I just think it's absolutely critical that the parents provide that child with some exposure to the group which he, he or she identifies racially. I, I think it's actually cruel to deny that. And so then it becomes incumbent both on the foster family, but I would also say on the child welfare system. So here in Vermont, FSD, that or DCF, that they they need to help families to be able to do that. Because if we're going to allow people to foster, you know, not just middle class families to foster, or you have a kinship uh, placement, that it is incumbent upon the system 
who is taking that child from their family of origin to provide resources so that right. fa- foster families can do that with children. Absolutely. Um, so I, just I, I think I think it's crucial. Mm-hmm. And and so then it's the, you know it's the entire system that becomes responsible for ensuring that those kids of color have access to resources, supports, activities, celebrations that right. reflect that identity that maybe they've never had before. I really like that. Absolutely. And if I can say one other thing very quickly, and this comes back to a question you asked very uh, previously, and I think, it's, again, it's a place where sort of whiteness infiltrates the system because if the because the, the prevailing notion is that that one of the best things that can happen for a poor person of color, child of color, is to be fostered or adopted by a white family and be exposed to white values. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a misnomer. And I think that notion is one of the reasons why I don't, I don't think that the type of effort that's needed to connect you know, kids of color with communities of color is ever made because the notion is that, well, you know, just this experience here will make them better in the world. I mean, it's it's kind of like someone told me once that the black people in this country were better off even with slavery because if we weren't adopted by this country, we'd be stuck in Africa. And so it, it's that it, that that ideology is a white dominated ideology Mm -hmm. that is problematic. And I see lots of white families who foster children of color operate from that same idea. It's like that Sally Struthers, save the world, white savior kind of thing happening that, yeah, that that whiteness is right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, So as foster families prepare um, to support the kids, you know, so we've talked about what they need to do once the kids are there. How can families um, prepare themselves, white families? Well, I, I think from the, most, from the most rudimentary to, I, I, you probably wouldn't be surprised, but most people are surprised how many questions I get and how often it comes up in therapy with foster families about things like, how do you comb and manage black hair, for example? So I think there's some real practical things that, mm-hmm. you know, just in turn. And again, like I think there's a broader system, uh, system responses as well. I mean, you know, if you can't comb your child's hair and you, and you don't, that it's foreign to you, that has broad sweeping implications for relationship. Because I think if you're able to do it, like what a wonderful bonding experience potentially. Mm-hmm. So I just think, um, I, I think the, there are a, a number of pragmatic issues that are just, I think are necessary for preparation. Mm-hmm. But then I also think it's about being prepared to stretch beyond one's temple of familiar and one's comfort zone. Because as I was saying before, that if there's a family that has a black male child and the idea is to drop him off at the local barbershop. And there may or may not be black and brown barbershops in Vermont right, in great numbers. But but still, I think the importance of walking out in public with a child of color. And if you've lived before that your life as a white person, you're not accustomed to being stared at or whispers or point or, you know, the pointing that the kinds of things that go on that can be very disruptive to do the kind of work that one can have oneself regulated when one is approached about whether you're 
the child's nanny or somebody else's child. I mean, like all these little issues that come up around race that, like I said, any one of them is not problematic in and of itself. But when you're being barraged by these these kinds of experiences and you've never had to deal with them before, I think it does require some emotional psychological preparation. So it's like buckle up and find some supports because you're going to need it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that also making a concerted effort to enhance one's awareness, because I think there's a whole world out there that white people don't necessarily are necessarily privy to and don't have to participate in because they don't have to. But once you once you foster, once you take in a child of color, then you have to discover BET or you <laughs> have to you know that okay. uh, that there are are movies out there and and literature that that you need to be exposed to. And I think all those things are important. I think they require, you know, parents to just, the preparation is much more extensive than just, you know, creating a bedroom for a child. So I want to shift our attention just a little bit um, to something that happens um, in child welfare all the time, right? Uh, workers have to go out and they have to do a safety assessments, what you do, you know, when you get a report and you're called out to a house. Here in Vermont, the second question on the safety assessment is we call it the cultural context box. It's number two. And in this box, folks are supposed to be asking culturally relevant information about the family. And so as I was thinking back to a previous episode where, where we're talking about the how critical it is that we ask about identity and specifically race, um, one of the things that we are struggling with as a state is how do we do this when we are just meeting someone and we're going into someone's home for the first time and, you know, they're, they're thinking, you know, is this person going to take my child away? So so my, my question to you is, what advice do you have for workers about engaging families in conversation about culture, specifically about identity, especially if it's something that they're expected to do within the first 30 minutes of meeting them during a safety assessment? Well, I mean, as the outsider, I think there's something problematic with the, with the policy. I mean, Thank like I, I talked in a previous section about the, what I just said, nefarious piece. And if you look at this through a racial lens, people of color are really a traumatized, terrorized, targeted people. And we have to hold that reality in front of us. I mean, that, that is true for this country. I mean, as a country, we have a very complicated relationship with indigenous people. Uh, one that has been based on terror and targeting and trauma. You have people of African descent who have been enslaved and had a very complicated, tumultuous relationship with white people. The Japanese in camps, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so you have, it's been a hostile relationship where white people have not been trustworthy as a collective. And not only not trustworthy, but also have been assaultive in behavior. And so to think that that, you just create a policy that you'll waltz into these families and within 30 minutes ask the most intimate questions, questions that none of us on the worker side of it would be too comfortable asking without a history like that. I think it's utterly preposterous. I, I, it doesn't make sense to me. And this, it's a, it's a cla- I'm so glad you asked the question because it is a classic, concrete example of what I would point to as a policy that's well-intended, but is probably, and I'm being generous, racially biased. Mm-hmm. That the policy isn't, that the, that the cultivation and the articulation and the implementation of that policy is not informed by what clients need, 
it's based on what some bureaucrats have decided should happen. Right. And, and so when I talk about policies, I mean, this is a classic example that maybe uh, we know that the joining process cross-racially doesn't go as smoothly as it does when you have a worker and a family that's of the same racial background. Mm -hmm. And so to have one policy that you apply across the board uniformly as if the experiences of all the families are the same, I think is, is really problematic. You, you can't see, but I'm dancing in my chair because I've been saying this that same thing. I'm like, this is the wrong question to be asking at the wrong time. We need to be talking about these things. But I think, you know, you're kind of hitting on this idea that it's it's how and when we ask. That's about the need of the family versus the need of the system. Um, right. And you and you and you infused the word a minute ago, which I really appreciate it. It actually gave me a little bit chill bump. You said it's like humanizing the family. You said that earlier. Mm-hmm. And and that is precisely right, because when you are dehum- when you are stigmatized and devalued, you are dehumanized. And so what happens if to go into a family and within 30 minutes you're asking these types of questions is further dehumanization. It's like I I see you as an object. That may not be the intent, but that is the consequence of it. And so I think the work has to be relationship centered. I need to cultivate a relationship with you where I respect, uplift and acknowledge your humanity. And I see the worth in you. And when that happens, there's probably no question that's too sensitive to ask at that point. Because you're asking it within the context of a relationship. But the cultivation of that relationship requires uh, attention to process. And what's driving the need to ask this question within 30 minutes of a visit is product. Right. Well, and I, you know, I say 30 minutes, but it's within that first visit in which the worker is doing the safety assessment. And I'm worried that it decreases safety for everyone in the room. Absolutely. <laughs> when we're talking about, you know, like, are you going to take my children away? And right. then you ask me about my race. It's it's kind right. of a setup for everyone, and it's antithetical to being really racially responsive. Right. Um, so, so thank you for affirming that for me, um, and and for you know for our families that if people are asking you that and they don't have the um, they haven't developed the trust in the relationship with you, that it can feel more like an assault or a potential threat than something that's actually helpful. Um, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. Go ahead. No, I just think it's one thing if I'm white going into a white family and and you see in me, you see yourself in me mm-hmm. and you have reason to believe that I have your best interest at heart. Then mm-hmm. I think that I think I, I can ask that question within the first visit. Mm-hmm. But when that's that those are not the dynamics of a cross racial relationship. Right. Especially if the one with the situational power is also one with the structural power. Absolutely. Uh, so does to say the white person and it's a person of color. Right. So this has been really amazing, super helpful in terms of, you know, what we need to consider, what caveats and considerations for families of color, um, and then for, for white parents and white foster parents. And I really appreciate your input there on that last piece around workers asking about race, because it's, it is something that we want them to do. And we want to make sure they have a proper relationship before they do. So um, is there anything else that you can think of in terms of engaging with families, uh, parents specifically, um, that you want to make sure that our audience hears about today? I think we've covered the landscape here. I, I, I do. I, you know, I, I appreciate families for doing this work. And I just think that, uh, as I said, in a previous notion, I just think learning as much as you can know about um, the experience of people of color and children of color, I think, uh, is helpful. 
Well, for our listeners, if you've heard Ken and I saying, we said before a previous session, please feel free to go back and listen to our other two conversations together as we feel that these three topics together give you a, a little more of a dimensional look, a little bit of flavor on the food um, in terms of understanding race and racism in child welfare here in Vermont. Ken, I can't thank you enough for all that you do in the world, but that you've done for us here in Vermont um, and on this podcast series with me. So thank you. Thank you um, for being you. It's been a real pleasure to work with you and to do this. I, I, I thank you so much for having me. No problem. All right. Take care and everybody um, get out there and start talking about race. Hey, everyone. Thank you for hopping over to this uh, extended segment of our Racial Justice uh, Learning Series podcast. I'm Tabitha. You were just listening to Ken and I, hopefully talking about the ins and outs of racial awareness and racial justice in child welfare. I'm joined for this episode by Cassie Gillespie, a very familiar face for most of you in Vermont. And we're here to dive a little bit more deeply into some of the topics uh, that Ken and I didn't have a lot of time to get into, but are really important to understand. Yeah, thank you so much for making time to do this, Tabitha. Um, let's catch the listeners up a little bit as to how we got exactly here. Good idea. Perfect. So for listeners out there, um, the way these kind of production processes work is that we record a podcast and then there's some rough cuts and you listen to them and there's some editing done. And then we, you know, put out our snazzy product. In this case, as I was listening to the rough cuts that Tabitha and Ken made for us, um, I was filled with so many questions that I wanted to follow up about. So I did. So I called you, right? You did. You called me. And asked her a bunch of questions. And we had some great conversations and then decided that maybe we should have them in here, in the studio, so other people could listen too, because they might have the same questions. Yeah, it's such a complex uh, topic. It's really difficult for people, especially white folks who've never really come into contact with or had to think about race or racism in, in their lives, let alone in their work. So we wanted to go a little bit deeper so that folks could... Uh, have a little bit more dimension to what they heard in the podcast with Ken and I. Yeah. And, you know, as I was listening, there were so many questions I was thinking of, but there's a kind of particular or specific section of question that I want to pitch to you. And okay. we can dialogue a little bit about it, which is specific to talking to families about race and cultural identity. You know, you and Ken talked about that a couple of different ways in the podcast series. So talking about demographic data, talking about the cultural context box on mm -hmm. the safety assessment. This is probably a good place to do a little update there, which is to say that um, in the new SDM manual rollout, which is coming soon, fall of 2021, um, a change that's been in the works for a little bit, but we want to make sure we talk about here because it's really relevant, mm -hmm. is this idea that the cultural context box has actually been moved to all tools, but it's a non-mandatory field. And so what that means is you don't have to fill it out. So if you've assessed that it's not safe or it's not the time, um, you can advance the tool without filling it out. But it is on every tool as a prompt, as a reminder, as a place to um, hopefully support the workforce to lean into these conversations. And I guess, Tabitha, the question I have for you, right, and Ken, but here I have you, mm -hmm. is this idea of, um, so let's say, I'll just use my own practice as an example, as someone who didn't develop a racial lens till much later in life and is still new in my own journey about thinking about race at work and the power and my positional authority in relation to race and cultural identities, how am I going to accurately assess, you know, whether I'm prompted to have a conversation because it's an SDM tool 
or I need to collect demographic data, mm. or I'm asking about family for family finds or network building. Um, what are the things I should be thinking about to assess when it's safe to have that conversation and how to have that conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think before you can even answer that question, it's important to recognize the context. In foundations, we teach about understanding your surroundings and understanding the environment in which you're walking into. So before you can even figure out momentary safety, it's a matter of understanding both the cultural context and the and the power dynamic that's happening. Um, you're in a system that is white-centric, that was, uh, you know, we know that there's disproportionality. You know, Ken and I already went over that. So when you're working in a system that has never asked you to talk about race, it's incredibly difficult to bring it up. And when you're in a system that uh, disproportionately harms people of color, you need to take that context into consideration for overall safety before you can even get to timing to when the words come out. You know, and and you and I have talked about this. It's kind of like we're trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're not even talking about actual systemic change. We've slapped a box on a piece of paper for people who've never really had uh, consideration or thought about this, uh, this concept of of race and racism and how it impacts systems and and families and then, you know, all of the nuance there. So what we've done is essentially slap a Band-Aid on an arm that's been cut off. And that is a difficult ask. And so we know, though, that if we don't try to do something, the the bleeding is going to continue. So the first thing that anybody needs to do is situate themselves in that context before they go in and talk with a family to think about where they're, you know, what's going on will sharpen their lens and their ability to uh, judge the timing. That being said, Ken was very clear, you know, in his conversation that if you haven't built the social capital, you don't have the right to ask. And so, you know, we have the individual, which is the worker that's going in, that's trying to get information, that's trying to be thoughtful, um, trying to support and engage families in culturally relevant ways. At the same time, is the system even asking the larger question? I would contend that if it's not, and it's not um, changing the ways that systems see families and work with families across culture, that it's perpetuating harm. And so then, you know, that Band-Aid that the worker is using is getting smaller and smaller and smaller till it's down to a little butterfly Band-Aid or one of those ones you put on when you, you know, cut yourself shaving. So um, I don't, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, we're talking about racism and it's not a fun topic, even though we can laugh sometimes. Um, so when it comes to how do you determine safety in the moment, you've got to take that, that into consideration. And then you have to look at your relationship with the folks. You have to build your, uh, your preamble, your speech. And that's not to say that you develop, you know, one cookie cutter speech, but you have to know where you are in relationship to these topics. And you have to know how to explain to a family, a white family, probably more than a family of color, is not going to understand why you're asking about race. Um, and why you're talking been, about that. That's been true in my experience. Yeah, because white people don't ever have to think about it. We think about it all the time. We're not the ones who need racial justice training. It's white people that need it. So I would recommend that before you even get to that space where you're trying to judge uh, judge timing, develop that speech so you have that ready. You know um, how to handle potential uh, questions, concerns, anger that might come up. And so once you are prepared in that and you think that you have enough, and remember, I'm just thinking about like even the foundational level, right? When people come out of foundations, Mm -hmm. 
um, they're not, you know, perfect and, and all, you know. So this is foundational level preparation around these things. And then you know what you're going to say. You know the way that you're going to proceed. And now you have to have the relationship there. And you, there's so many questions that child welfare workers ask that are incredibly invasive yeah. and painful and harmful and trauma-inducing. And this is another one, particularly for people of color. For white folks, it can feel traumatizing if they've never thought about it. Um, and they might feel defensive. Um, or like you're going to be judging whether or not they're racially aware um, as a matter of their ability to take care of children, which is, you know, not what you're there to do. So in order to judge um, whether or not your relationship is at a place where you can do that, um, you got to think about, you know, has the family ever talked about race or racism? Um, many families of color have experienced it and may willingly bring it up. They may say things to you like, you know, you're only here because I'm black. Right. Uh, which can be true. Um, there was just a case the other day. I don't know if you saw this. But um, it was a high school in Tennessee. There were two TikToks uh, by cheerleaders, interestingly enough. I did see this. Did you see this? I, I think I posted it with a rant on Facebook because <laughs> uh, the high school administration and the cheerleading coach kicked off uh, the young black girl uh, who performed the same exact dance as her white peer. Both of them are 15 years old. I mean, it was yeah. incredible. And called DCF to get involved with the black family because this young girl uh, had made this TikTok and they sexualized her. The adults in the world sexualized the young black girl while not doing the same or doling out consequences, which we could talk about that another day. The for the young podcast. white girl. That's a whole other series. Call me back <laughs> for that one. Will do. And so there's this way in which our reality is framed by the fact that we are disproportionately contacted. And you can use that as an entryway to, to acknowledge and affirm that reality. I think part of what I'm, what's coming up for me while I'm listening to you is this idea that, I think it was in the second podcast, you know, you and Ken were talking about this idea that if you're the worker in the relationship between the worker and the family or in the relationship between the supervisor and the worker, um, if you have positional authority, you need to be the broker of permission to talk about race. That's right. Right. And then this tension point between, but if you don't have uh, the relationship, if, if, the safety isn't present, if trust isn't built, if the system isn't changing, that it causes harm. And that tension point, you know, a worry, I'm just going to name it, a worry I have is that folks who are early on in their practice will take that as an off-ramp. They're like, well, that's really hard. I'm just not going to talk about it because I can't ensure that it's safe. Or yeah. I, you know. <clears throat> safety is always used against us. It's the officer feared, feared, feared for their life. The white lady in the right. park feared for her safety. Uh, safety is always weaponized against people in marginalized positions. And so uh, the self of the practitioner becomes a really important part of this. And self-exploration and understanding, you know, we, we do the cultural iceberg in foundations as a way for people to start to understand dimensions of self and um, exploring their boundaries and their comfort. I would contend that that needs to continue as a part of regular training is understanding um, what makes you afraid and where does that come from. Um, and yeah, people, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. And white folks don't like to talk about race or racism, period. I mean, after Sandy Hook, after uh, Florida, uh, Marjorie Douglas High School, nobody had a problem 
uh, scrutinizing school safety and scrutinizing the way that administrative procedures happen and the people in those positions and security guards. Nobody had a problem creating safety around that. But when it comes to creating racial safety, despite the overwhelming evidence uh, that people of color are more likely to be harmed um, and have been killed, uh, we still hesitate to look at our systems. We still hesitate to ask the questions that we know are necessary. Um, the airlines have no problem asking you if you have anything on you, if, you know, you right. have anything in your shoes. Yeah. But we won't ask about race. And that's because our country has that, you know, uh, incredibly painful history. So what I would encourage workers to do is when you get to that place, oh, it's not safe for me to ask, what's not safe? Are you not feeling safe because it's going to be uncomfortable for you? Yeah, that comfort versus safety um, comes up a lot. Are you not safe because you fear how they're going to react to you? And then to work that through because hopefully your supervisor has been doing and thinking about the same things. And to ask, you know, uh, to create those situations in supervision or, you know, at staff meeting where you can imagine those top 10 or 11 uh, pushbacks that you're going to get and then practice doing them ahead of time. And, and to really consider, is your safety at risk? And then is the safety of the person at risk, which is, you know, um, vital. That should actually be the deciding variable, no? I right. mean, your safety is paramount to you, but... Right. Like, like, oh, I don't want to inflict more trauma by asking. Well, guess what? If you're white and the people are not white, they're already thinking about race. You're just not naming it. And as the person with authority, it is incumbent upon you to do so in ways that are responsive and, and thoughtful and to own trauma that you may cause. It's like, I think about it like a, a surgeon who doesn't deliver enough anesthesia, or um, who accidentally, you know, hurts you in the process, and them not apologizing. That would be ridiculous if they didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, that hurt you. Right, right. Um, people often are like, well, I, I just, I, I didn't mean to. I have to ask these questions. Right? They go so, back to their intent instead of the impact. Yeah, it's, it's the defensiveness. So thinking about those things becomes a part of um, preparing. It, it's, it's so much more preparing okay. than it is actually delivering. Um, self-reflection, uh, awareness of harm to other uh, cultural humility, ability to apologize, uh, become a part of when is this the right time? It's like playing double dutch with about eight ropes. <laughs> that's kind of how I think about it, right? Because I think it feels that way to lots of people, right? And some people are like you've only got eight, Tabitha, right? <laughs> because you're in a you know you're in a tough situation. You know, you already know. You've already listened to all the podcasts. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you're talking to me, but there's other people listening. We hope, <laughs> right? <laughs> Like, if it's just the, us, this is what silly. What the heck is this? Having this conversation again. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's like you're doing double dutch with eight ropes, right? You've got like, you're in there to assess um, danger, but whose definition of danger are you even assessing? I mean, I guess I have this question about, you know, I'll speak from my own practice, but I would guess this is true for others, is I can't tell you how many times now looking back, I opted to do something or not do something based on air quotes, my assessment of safety when I think I was conflating my sense of comfort mm -hmm. or competence. Right. And, and I think that, that those are critical distinctions. So then it becomes necessary to have conversations in which you detail what safety is or is not. Um, we all have different tolerances for people when they yell. 
yeah. when they name call, right? And so that's where that cultural iceberg becomes really important. How do you how do you understand anger? How do you understand rage? How do you understand fear and its manifestations? How comfortable are you with these things coming back at you? Yeah, and I think, you know, given the interplay of secondary traumatic stress and trauma exposure response, this becomes you know, exponentially more complicated, right? Because Absolutely. sometimes there is real harm uh, that workers sustain. I mean, lots of times. Uh, so can I ask you this and push back if uh, you're trying to go somewhere else with this, but help me think through or help listeners think through how to think about the tension point between your own safety, right? Mm-hmm. But and the readiness or the safety of the family to have this conversation because something I might not be good at but I'm at least familiar with is assessing how dangerous is the situation to me mm-hmm. I've d- had a, you know how many training hours about how dangerous is this to the child something I know virtually nothing about <laughs> or I'm just like in infancy and learning about is how dangerous is this conversation in terms of creating racialized trauma for the family I'm having it with yeah uh, it's going to happen Just by virtue of you already being involved with the family, there's already racial trauma and fear. And so, um, you know, you can get ahead of it by saying things like, look, I know I'm going to mess this up. I know that this is painful and that the system does X, Y, Z. You know, that prep becomes really important. And then saying, I'd like to talk about race and how it's manifesting in your life and in your experiences not just so I can support you around it, but so that we can understand the resources, the richness, the the power that that you have in everything that you are as a racialized being. Saying that and asking permission to go there for people of color becomes really critical. I'd like to distinguish talking with families of color from talking with white families. Because the likelihood of white families having racialized trauma in a system that reflects who they are as racialized beings Mm -hmm. is not what it is for for people of color. Now, again, they could still be afraid, and you still need to have a level of care, but it's a completely different conversation. And I guess here's where I want to take it one step further down the wormhole, because we've gotten this question from staff before. Mm -hmm. This is such... Well, I'm already congratulating myself on my great question before I I ask it. But, um, okay... Especially in Vermont, I'm sure this is true everywhere, right? But where we have such a prevalence of white people and such a low level of practice, I guess, around asking around racial identity, um, a lot of times there's just an assumption that someone who phenotypically looks white is white and Mm -hmm. we don't ask, right? Um, But if we're having this whole conversation about the need to ask families and then respond to those conversations in different ways. Mm-hmm. It almost implies that we would know in advance who's a family of color and who's not, and that we'd craft the, and prep for those conversations differently. Mm. See what I'm saying? So I have a couple of, re- of responses um, to your questions. I mean, and the first one is that, um, you know, we should be prepping all the time. You know, in, in the case of school shootings, for example, we have no problem at all um, having kids practice fire drills or, or uh, um, shooter drills, active shooter drills in schools. There's no reason that DCF can't be uh, having practice um, every month about the epidemic of racism. There's no reason that they shouldn't be pulling a question out of a hat and saying, okay, how are you going to practice having this particular conversation about race and then working together around that? 
to answer your actual question, the one that that you intended to ask, um, you know, I think what you're talking about is the tension between uh, being racially responsive and not wanting to make assumptions. And that's one that we often find ourselves in. And in order to be racially responsive, you have to be taking into consideration uh, our larger community context, which we've talked a little bit about, that family's community context and, and all of their experience. Maybe you're getting a whole file of information on them that gives you context about who they are. Um, and I know that different workers have different ways of, of um, storing or using that information when they, they, if it's a new worker meeting a family. Or you have a, you know a report that's coming in. I would I would say that if you are going to be racially responsive and if you want to be able to talk about race with families, that you need to develop a script that is uh, thoughtful about how race impacts everyone. And then uh, we can't escape the reality that some of us have darker skin color, and we know that that's that if you are not white you're not white looking, then there's a strong likelihood that you are having some some pretty um, significant experiences with racial trauma. And so to be racially uh, racially responsive or racially thoughtful, pretending that doesn't exist so that you don't make an assumption is less helpful than saying, hey, let's, you know, let's let's talk about race. I, I can, you know, as somebody who doesn't look white, there's a likelihood that you're having experiences that I'm not aware of and that I need to be thoughtful and mindful of that as well as being thoughtful and mindful about, uh, you know, your culture and, you know, how race plays a role in your life. And parts of that you'll, you'll adapt to conversations with people who eventually identify as white. Um, obviously, you know, again, the culture, whiteness, how has it shaped your life? Um, That'll become a part of your conversation too. But going into it, yeah, you don't know necessarily what you know people's identities may be. Um, but being racially responsive requires us to uh, wade into that territory and be willing to be wrong, but also try um, to be sensitive and thoughtful. I mean, I think the thing that's really interesting here too is um, universally, well, I think universally, um, People in child protection, they're talking to families and clients and caregivers about identity in all kinds of interesting ways mm-hmm. um, and then really falling short here when we get to like race and ethnicity and right. for a lot of reasons you talked about, right? Like, uh, I mean, we could list them all, but that's a long list. <laughs> well, right. And in Vermont, you have a 94.7% chance of guessing right, right. <laughs> As a child welfare worker. Yeah. That's a really high odd. And, and you know, um, I think what it comes down to is, is developing a deep sense of commitment and understanding to why it's important to talk about race and um, the racialization of, of, you know, of people um, in order to develop a, a process for, you know, determining safety, a process for understanding the timing of when you should be having these conversations um, and then the language. But yeah. it, you've got to start with that centering around why is this important before you can jump into any of those other... It's the feeling and the being before the doing. Yeah. That's a Ken Hardy. <laughs> okay, so I want to summarize here. Good luck. I think I can. Um, so when we're thinking about how to have these conversations, you know, 
let me take a stab and then you you tell me if I've gotten these right. That the paramount thing is to start internally, right? So mm-hmm. that you're not just starting from a place of action. You're not just looking for a technical solution to an adaptive problem. You're not just checking a box because you can't. It, that won't be the right box and it won't be done. Uh, but you're starting from a place of within yourself. And, and if you're white, decentering your whiteness in this whole process. Um, from there, thinking about the importance of leaning into the conversation and not assuming. And then this was the big one I heard. Prep, 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 right? <laughs> And then practice and then prep some more. If you're a supervisor, that prep and that practice might look like how you support your staff to have these conversations. If you're a frontline worker, it's what's the actual language you're going to use to have these conversations. Maybe some group think around places you think you might get caught up. Um, And then being sensitive to the overall context of what else is happening in the system so that you're not over here moving something forward while there's all this other harm unaddressed happening over here. Does that feel like I'm capturing... Some of it? Yeah, no, I think you did a really good job, but I would change the order that the first thing you need to do, no, the first thing you need to do is self-awareness in this larger context. Oh, got me there. That's got to come first. Okay. Because you can't, everything else, you know, is based on the fact that you have this larger harm being created. The ship is sinking, right? Um, so we can't really, you know, focus on, um, you know, what we're going to do in the water when we haven't even figured out the exit plan. Yeah. Um, or how to write the ship. Um, so, yeah, that would be my first thing. And then, yeah, I think you did a great job summarizing. I think, you know, I, I've made it clear, you know, when I was at CWTP, my feelings about the cultural context box, again, I think it's a tiny attempt to mitigate the harm. The larger harm. But it is not an adequate solution or even a cold, it's not even a transformative shift in practice. It's not a transformative shift. You know, it's, it's again, it's technical or adaptive. It's a technical solution to a systemic racism problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and feel free to argue with me here, and I, I know you will. <laughs> but uh, Put on my glasses. <laughs> to me, the, the transformative shift is... is that while while we're working on larger organizational change and while we're scaling right. up and addressing various parts of the system, that we're also committed to scaling up everybody on how to have these conversations. And so whether it's for the SDM assessment or your demographics or your family planning right. or your case plan, you know, the actual technical place for it, it doesn't matter to me. It's what needs to, you know, it's this conversation, like what yeah. people need to have to be able to have the conversation. Yeah. And we want to grow from a butterfly bandage to, you know full suture or you know, know whatever. I'm trying to think what a big bandage is. <laughs> An ace bandage. An ace bandage. <laughs> <laughs> Some gauze. Um, yes. And this will not be successful without a couple things. One, right, is uh, the attention to the relationship and permission. Um, and then two is the support to the worker and making sure that when they come back from the field or before they go in the field that they have adequate practice opportunity and the tools that they need. Now, again, is that any reason not to go? Nope. Right. Uh, You still got to go out there and you still got to do your best. Uh, And you still have to ask the question even if you're scared or uncomfortable. All right. Well, I mean, I think that you summed it up there. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for sharing some of your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me and for the courage to continue down this path. Awesome. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership 
and the state of Vermont. Our music is composed and performed by local band Brickdrop, and our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Esmond Communications and Egan Media Productions. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.